Last week, as we get into John chapter 18, we noted that this is the beginning of the pathway to the cross. 18, chapter 18, that is, starts this path where we will see the betrayal, the arrest, the trials, the crucifixion, and then the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Leading up to chapter 18, we've seen his teaching, we've seen his miracles, we've seen his life's example that he has given not only to us, but to his disciples. We also mentioned last week that chapter 18 of John, because of the purpose of John, does not really concentrate on Gethsemane. He concentrates, and I spent the entire message on that last week, he concentrates mostly in helping us to understand that Jesus is in absolute total control. He, this is what he came for the betrayal, the arrest, the crucifixion, and so forth. He is not a victim of circumstances. This is not an unfortunate situation by any means, nor is he helpless as he is going through this difficult time. So John wants us to see that and, over, and emphasizes that over and over throughout as we continue through the book. However, we I do feel that it is important at least to touch upon, because it does mention where he went, a little bit of Gethsemane and just allow for one time dealing with it because we will deal with the location that he goes to in verse 1. And this is really preliminary to what will happen when we get to verse 3. So uh, we're jumping around a little bit into Matthew this morning, as you will see. But let's get right into it. Let's deal first with the location and that is found, again, in verse 1, as to where the Lord Jesus Christ is. And the scriptures tell us, let's just take what it says after having dealt with that first phrase. It says, he went forth with his disciples. Well, he went forth, let us keep in mind, he had already left the upper room. And if you want to turn back, I will not. You can turn back to John chapter 14, verse 31, and you will see that, where he had already proceeded from the upper room with his disciples. He is still teaching them. Where is he? He is probably, and I will give you some slides in just a moment, but he is probably on the east side. We don't know exactly at this moment, but probably on the east side of the Temple Mount because of where it was. And the second thing it says that he was not only with his disciples, but he goes over the ravine of the Kidron. He goes over the winter torrent is what, really what it was back then, and it's dealing with a wadi in the Kidron Valley. It is a place where when it rained, and especially in the wintertime, as you research that, water would flow through this area because there was a major valley. And it was between the Temple Mount, as we know it today, and the Mount of Olives. And that is easy to talk. Some of you I know have been there, and you can see it in your mind's eye. Others have not. But I think it is helpful. So I asked a couple of slides this morning and we will just take a look. And I'm just trying to give you, so in your mind's eye, you have a picture of what's going on here. I think we're going to get them. Uh, can we block out that background? I thought that was going to be a lot bigger than it is, but we'll live with it. No, I don't mean to block out the whole. Can we make that bigger? No? It was bigger on my computer. There we go. OK. And this is just, I want to give you a couple of slides so you see what we're dealing with as to where he is. Now, this is the Temple Mount. Oh, that's not the one I wanted. There's one a little bigger here someplace. Here we go. This area here is the Temple Mount, and 
though it would have not looked exactly like this, obviously, the Lord would have been up in this area, and this is the east area. And right in here, and I'll give you some better pictures, is this Kidron Valley. And over here is the Mount of Olives. So you've got high ground here and high ground here, and it's in here. And the Lord had come out. Go to the next slide, please. I want to go through four of them right now. I guess I have to go back each time. Just bear with me with the technology. There's got to be a better way of doing this, but it is what it is. Try to blow it up. There we go. And again, this is the, this is the Mount of Olives. Some of you have been there. And again, I wanted you to get a concept of the slope that we have here. Up here is where he's coming from and crossing over. And this is in the area of the Mount of Olives. Go to the next one. There's just two more quickies. Or not so quickies. Any more? I meant to study this one, but... And again, this is just, a, and it didn't come out the way I wanted it to on this particular slide. Again, my computer, we'll, go all to my, we'll all go to my office, no. Uh, but you can see the difference, the slope you can certainly gather here. It's a major area, and this is actually looking at it so you can see it better. But I want to give you the aerial view, and that's the fourth one. To give some perspective, rather than just read the Bible and you don't see the perspective of what's going on. Let's go to the, ooh, that's pretty good technology. Can we get to the fourth one? Yeah, there we go. And blow that one up. Because I want you to just see this. So it's in your mind's eye when we're going through Scripture. All right. Here again, you can see the Temple Mount. So the Lord would have been coming down in this area. And here's the Mount of Olives over here. Okay? And right in there is that Kidron Valley. Big, big area. And it's pretty steep. And he's coming across. And actually, where he will end up when he's praying in our text this morning is down in this area. This is where the garden is. Up here is the top of the mountain, Mount of Olives. Okay, there's burial grounds and so forth over here. But right in here is where the arrest is going to take place and where he is. He's crossed over. He's left the teaching. He's been teaching them on the way. And so when we come in our text and it says he's going over the Kidron, the ravine of the Kidron, this area right in here, and he is going to go into this area down here. I'll give you just two more slides in a moment. They can prepare for that. And it's in this area that he's going to be praying. So it'll give you at least a visual aid. Back in John chapter 17, and they'll get the next two slides for you. But in John chapter 17, we see that he's gone forth with his disciples. He's left that area in Jerusalem. He's gone across the ravine of the Kidron. And he's come to where there's a garden. He's come to a garden. This is not identified in John. It is identified. You can put that up. That's okay. It's identified... In Matthew's text, and we will be there in a minute, it's identified as Gethsemane. And we'll talk about that in a second. But I want you to see before I look at those last two slides, and it's hard to get your mind off them if it's in front of you, but that's okay, leave it there. I want you to see that it was probably a private garden, just so you understand this. Why would I say that, or why do we think that? Well, for a couple of reasons. You'll notice in verse 2, again, it helps you to, you know, we think of our gardens today, or we think of these areas today. Well, back then it was probably a private garden because we read in verse 2 that he goes into it, okay? There was a garden, I'm sorry, in verse 1, in which he entered into it with his disciples. He enters into this area. And then if you look ahead for the text in a, in next week in verse 4, it says, So Jesus, knowing that all things that were coming upon him, he went forth or he went out of the garden is what it's dealing with. 
He goes in and he goes out and he is going to leave all of his disciples but three outside of the private area. Okay, let me just get those slides done so we can. This is a, a picture of what it is like today in that area where I, I said that now he came down in with the uh, aerial view. And you can see these are olive trees and so forth. And I don't want to get way off on a tangent. But in all likelihood, I think for your mind's eye again, when Christ was crucified, I know you see these smooth crosses today. Uh-uh. It's probably this rough wood of olive that he was probably crucified on. And it was not a nice smooth thing and so forth. But at any rate, this is what the garden's looking at like. Go to the next slide because I want to show you this next one just for a moment. So get in your mind's eye. Slow that up if you can. Okay, that's black and white, so it's not too good because it's an old picture of the garden. You can see now you haven't got the the situation where you've got today with uh, this churches there and all of this stuff. But that's what it would have been looking like. And there is a fence here, okay, because it was a, a, an entranceway where they would go into a private area, but it would just be a lot of trees around. You can take the slides down now. And it would be been at the base of the Mount, excuse me, the Mount of Olives and across from the city that he had just come from or out of Jerusalem. And so he comes to this area, this private area, and you can shut the whole thing down up there. But he comes to this private area with his disciples. Why did he go there? Why did he go to this site? Well, the scriptures tell us. In verse 2, for example, it tells us, now Jesus also, who was betraying him, knew the place. Why? For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas knew the spot where Jesus would go. He had already gone off and is set in his ways to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was in with his disciples in the city, but he comes outside of the city. They had celebrated the Passover. He comes across to a private area where he had gone frequently. I'd like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 21 for a moment. These, this helps fill the picture. Luke chapter 21. Judas knew it well because the Lord frequented the spot. And in Luke 21, verse 37, which is why I also gave you the overhead, because it refers to the Mount of Olives. In verse 37, it says, And during the day he was teaching in the temple, but in the evening, it was very common. Remember, this is what we're facing right now in our text. It is the evening. At the evening, he would go out and spend the night, the entire night, at the mount that was called Olivet. And he was down in this private area. So when it says he wasn't probably at the top of the mountain, but down where his garden was, and it was very common for him in the evening to go there. Chapter 22 of Luke, one more verse, verse 39. I want you to see this again. It says, and he came out and proceeded as his custom. That's where he was, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. So I just compared to Luke because it brought it out in those two texts. But you'll see, just as with John, he goes as was his custom in the evening. He would have a long day, and then he would take time to go and pray. So when, in Scripture, when you hear that he went up to the mountains to pray, many times it was referring to the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives. 
or was referring to this private area that was available to him and his disciples. Judas knew where it was. Why do this privately? There's going to be a large crowd that comes to him, but I believe, again, you see the Lord in control here. He didn't want an uproar in the city. He came along with his disciples. He knew who was going to betray him. Judas knew where to find him. So he comes to this area known as Gethsemane in our main text, and so that's where we'll go right now is Luke, I'm sorry, Matthew 26. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. We will look at Luke again in a moment. But Matthew 26, and in verses 36 through 46, our responsive reading is where we have the reference to Gethsemane and what went on. But the Lord has been ministering to them. Let us not lose our context. He has been teaching them from chapters 13 through chapter 17 privately. He's now proceeded ahead. He's going across to this area that he frequently goes to. And it is probably midnight. And we don't know exactly the timing, but it's late. And they're all exhausted, including the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to remember something else before we look at it. What has the Lord just done with them? He's prayed. He's prayed for them. They've seen him pray while he was going. That's why it's so important, again, chronologically, to follow him. You see that he was going with them. He's teaching them. Then he prayed for them. He's prayed for us. He prayed for himself. They have witnessed this prayer. And he's told them recently, just recently in chapters 14, in chapters 15, he will be betrayed. He will be denied by Peter. They will all scatter. This is not months ago. This is hours ago. Moments ago, he's prayed with them. They know where he's going. They know what he does there when he goes. And they're going along with him. They have said, we'll die with you. And he comes to this area. All of them are tired. It's not only been a long day, but a long week. And he gives them instruction. And I want you, we will be primarily in Matthew, but I want you to go back to Luke 22 for one more reason, just so you have the whole picture. Luke 22 for just one more thing. In Luke 22, verses 39 is what we looked at, and I want to read verses 39 and 40. Okay? It says, And he came out and he proceeded, as was his custom, right, to the Mount of Olives. We've seen a little picture of that now. And his disciples also followed him. So they're there. Now watch this. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, that's what I wanted. You say, well, that's not too significant. Yes, it is. It is not just the three that he takes with them. Yes, he's going to tell them to pray in Matthew. But I want you to catch this. He's told all of them to do this. He, he, he speaks to all of them, and he says to them, pray. And why was he telling them to pray? Notice what he says. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. He wanted all of them to pray. He's been instructing them. He is going to go alone. You can go back to the Matthew text. He's going to go alone and take three. He's leaving, if you will, outside of the gate. Uh, there's eight of them. He's taking three with him privately inside of the gates. And then he's going to even leave the presence of those three and get alone 
even by himself. But he's telling them that he wants them to pray. And I wanted to emphasize that just for this purpose again. Why do we need to pray that we enter not into temptation? Now, you already know the text because we had it responsively. The Lord recognized that the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. That is true for all of us. He doesn't want them to act according to the flesh. He doesn't want them to scatter. He knows they will. He doesn't want them to give in to fear. They're going to do that in just moments. He doesn't want their emotions to get the best of them. And that is true with all of us, if we're honest. Why do we need to pray? Most of the time, we pray after we get into trouble. Maybe you're different. You know? You get into a circumstance, or maybe it's a very difficult one, physically, where you get news from a doctor, or an accident happens, and then you start praying. Why do we wait till we're in it? The Lord had them, with all of the instruction, you and I read the word of God, we see we're told to put on the armor of God, we're told that we don't know what a day will bring. We know all of that, and we wait till it's on us, and then we say, God, help! It's true. It's practical. But I want you to see, he takes his disciples, and he's so concerned for them. He's not only instructing them, and we want to see what happens with him, but he's telling them, I want you to pray for your benefit. Pray that what? You don't enter into the temptation. We will be tempted, we will be tested, but sin is not conceived until we enter into it. That's what James teaches us. Corinthians teaches us about temptations. And so, folks, we need, do you understand why it tells us to pray without ceasing? Do you understand why the Lord tells us that we ought to be constantly praying? We ought to be instant to pray? All of these terminologies. Why after we're told to put on the armor of God? Did you ever notice that? Verse 18 of Ephesians 6. Pray. Why? Because you may be different, but my tendency is to wait till something happens and then to pray. We ought to be in prayer so we don't enter in. We need to be praying as we face the day. We are so weak. We need God's help. His disciples were tired, and that is the worst time. Do you think Satan goes to bed? Do you think our mind and our flesh just goes to bed? Well, you say, sometimes when I'm exhausted. Yeah, maybe. But it's at the moments that we are the weakest that we're most vulnerable. Most vulnerable. And how easy it is to know that we're supposed to pray and to not pray. Folks, we need to always be praying. Pray when you're in your car with your eyes open. Pray when you're at home. Pray when you're, in work, when you're at work. Pray no, no matter what you're doing. Even as I come to the pulpit, I'm involved with prayer. When I'm involved in a sporting event, I pray while I'm playing. That's the truth. We need to always be in prayer when I'm at home. When, and you say, well, it doesn't, you know, look at your life and you see what you do. You obviously miss a lot. Well, I fail. And I'm not making light of it. And so do you, but we need to be praying. This isn't just prayer meeting. This isn't just when we come together as a church. Life is to be marked by prayer. The disciples, or the apostles, if you remember, the early church, they said as the leaders, 
we will be committed to, we need to be committed to what? The word of God and prayer. And by the way, you want to pray for leadership? That's the way to pray for me. That's the way to pray for all of your leaders. We, if you're honest, we pray about all the other things for leaders. Pray that they will be committed to the word and prayer. That is going to be the most effective for you and the most effective for them. And it's so, so important. This physical difficulties. Okay, let's go look at Matthew now. As we look at Matthew 20, 30, uh, 26, 36, we see that he came and now we find the name. It is Gethsemane that the name's given to us. But before we even mention that, you notice that what happened? He, he came to his disciples and he took Peter aside and, and the two sons of Zebedee. So he goes inside the gate, he goes a little further, and he began to be grieved and distressed. He began to be grieved and distressed. To the point of death, the scriptures teach us in verse 38. That's how deeply grieved he is. If you don't see the humanity of Christ here, you're never going to see it. Did he feel the pain? Yes. Now, I'll deal with the the burden of the cross in just a minute. But did he know what he was going to face? Did he feel emotions? Of course he did. He began to feel intensely depression. I want you to see this. You ever get depressed? You can't escape this. He was depressed. You say, I don't know, that would have been sin. No, that was the emotions that he's expressing. He felt emotional stress. He felt discouragement. He knew his apostles were going to deny him. He knew that they fell, fell asleep. He wasn't surprised by that. The closest ones to him. And he was lonely. Why? I think that was one of the biggest things he was facing. Because in just a few moments, he's going to realize, again, in his prayer life, that his father is going to forsake him. And that's the cup that he's going to be referring to. He not only felt the physical pain, but it wasn't really just the physical pain was grieving him and distressing him, going to the cross and feeling that pain or being scourged. Yes, I don't think he was looking forward to that with enjoyment. But remember what we learned in John chapter 12 to give you a reference, specifically verse 27. What was that? He came for this purpose. He knew he came for this. What was his request? What was the real thing that brought the sorrow? What was the real thing that brought the emotions out of him? And I'm not spending the time because it's not so surrounded in, uh, in uh, John's account. But obviously you see that as he prayed, it was as if it was his blood was mixed with the water that dripped from him. He emotionally, have you ever been so emotional and so uptight that you began to sweat? That's what you see here. He was so distressed that it reached that level. And by the way, I said Gethsemane. That's the concept of the olive press. That's what that means. And that's why you get the olive trees and so forth. But what was it that really was on the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ? And can we know? Yes, we can. Why? Because he tells us. Look at verse 39. And he went a little beyond them, fell on his face, and what did he pray? My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Three times he is going to pray that. If it be possible, let this cup not uh, let this cup pass from me. You see it again in verse 42. If it, then again, he's dealing with this cup. What is this cup? 
Well, I think we know what it is here. I think we need to understand it, though. It's not so much the physical pain. It's the wrath of God on sin. It's what it is. It's divine judgment. That's who he's going to be. When he is the sacrifice for sin, understand this. Christ is the divine judgment on sin. That's what it is. That's what it means when it says he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He will be alone. He's never had that. And I'm talking about totally alone. He could go to the Father, <coughs> and his Father was always there. Not when he bears this cup. And that stress and that weight is upon him more than just the physical. And is that that he's going to bear for you and I? If you want to see that concept of the judgment, let's look at a couple of verses. Let's go to Isaiah 51 for a moment. Go with me to Isaiah 51. I want you to see this before we go to a familiar verse in just a, a second. In Isaiah 51, to give you a picture of the idea of bearing wrath in a cup, look at verse 17. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of what? His anger. The scriptures tell us that God hates sin. The scripture tells us that his wrath will be poured out on sin. And that is what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to bear. Go with me to chapter 53. You know it well. And look at verse 10. But the Lord was pleased, look at, to crush him, putting him to grief, it says in the English, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And we know that he is there for the transgressions of my people, verse 8. That's what it says. And what happened? He was numbered with the transgressions. In verse 12, look at it in the middle. Because he poured out himself to death, he's not just dealing with the physical. In verse 11, my servant will justify many as he will bear their iniquities. That's what you find in the Garden of Gethsemane. This cup that he's referring to, and go back to Matthew chapter 26, and then go a little bit further to 27, verse 46. Verse 46. Al Spies did a superb job when he addressed this if you were here for the Good Friday service, this is it. This is the cup. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is alone. And that's what he sees in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not just the physical. We often get so focused on that. But it also does show us the emotions of the Lord. It shows us the depression. It shows us the distress or the stress. It shows us the loneliness. And when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before, going back to John's account, just before his friend, 
just before the one who he's ministered to specifically for three years, who he's gifted and given many abilities and powers to, just before he comes and kisses him to betray him and turn him over. The Lord, tired and weary, having poured out his life to the disciples, having spent chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 teaching them privately, having prayed for them in chapter 17, all of them, late at night, wearied, he still goes with them, and he asks them to pray that they don't enter into temptation, and he prays that for himself, really. Father, the cup, is there any other way? Listen, 21st century people in the world do not want to accept that it's a narrow way for salvation. Do not want to hear that there's a, only one way, and it's through Jesus Christ. There is only one way. This prayer helps us with that. If it be possible, is there some other way, Father? Why? I am going to be forsaken by you who I could always go to, who I could always feel, at least you being there. No. You have to bear it. That's the cost of our salvation, folks. That's why I wanted to go back to Gethsemane. It isn't just the nails. It isn't the spear to the side. It isn't the nails or the crown of thorns, as bad as that is physically. It isn't bearing. For some of you that have been over there to Jerusalem, you've seen the various crosses and how rough they were. Just being put up against the cross would have done tremendous physical damage to the back and the backside. That's not it. It is bearing the weight and the penalty of our sin. And all that we see that we fight with, disease, illness, the animal world, and so forth and so on, and on we go. It is all because when Jesus, when he came to Lazarus and he raised him from the dead, he knew what he was going to do. But as he saw the results of sin, tears. As he's in the garden and he knows what it's going to cost to be the one and only and acceptable sacrifice, he understood it. And that's what we find. Three times he's praying, if it be possible. Hebrews chapter 9, I will read that to you. You don't need to turn there. You'll recognize it, I'm sure. But Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, says this. So Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, why do we look the second time? Because that one will appear a second time for salvation with reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. How many times we've heard 2 Corinthians 5.21, it should be ingrained in our memory that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That's what he's envisioning. That's why he's struggling. What about us? We have struggles. We have difficulties. He's pray he tells them to pray. Again, verse 41 of Matthew 26. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Why? The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Don't you think for one minute, the longest person that's been saved in this auditorium, and I don't know who that is, the one who thinks he's the most or she's the most spiritual Christian, 
You've just lined yourself up for a fall. The flesh is weak. But be encouraged because the Lord interceded for us. Be encouraged. He bore it. Notice his submission, verse 39 of Matthew 26. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. How about verse 42? My Father, if it cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 42, a third time, he went away and said the same thing. Three times he submitted. He prayed. What would he have chosen to do? Would have chosen to pass if there was any other way, but chose to submit to the Father's will. Do you understand a little bit now why he says in Hebrews that he was in all ways tempted like we are yet without sin? Do you understand why it says you have a high priest who understands our infirmities? The Lord Jesus Christ experienced loneliness. He experienced that flesh, in the flesh, discouragement, desertion, mistreatment, and on and on it goes. That's why he can say we have such a high priest who has been touched with us in So we can come boldly to the throne of grace. What is that? That's prayer for us. This isn't just looking at Jesus Christ and telling his disciples to pray. It's an example that we can go to our Savior. He understands. We don't know what we're facing. We don't know what might come, what we might bear in this life. And there are times that we go through and we struggle, do you not? Do I not struggle with things, whether they be physically, whether they be emotionally, whether they be spiritual? And we need God's help and strength. And the Lord Jesus Christ has given us an example himself. As he goes and he's reminded, and he had to depend upon the Father and accept it. And there will be moments, if they have not come to your life, there will be moments in which you will have to accept that which God has for you. And it won't be easy. But you need to submit to it and accept it. And that's going to be part of your battle or my battle when that comes. The tendency in the flesh, and these are all applications, but the tendency in the flesh is when things go wrong is to start blaming God, is to start wondering why me. It's starting to blame other people and never being willing enough to take it yourself. There isn't any one of us in this room, no exceptions, that things don't come up and we all of a sudden want to make excuses for what happened or what's going to happen or something's wrong. We need to be willing to just submit to God. The disciples fell in this sense. They had no more energy and the Lord knew it. They couldn't even pray. They had the example. Moments ago, they knew, they were told what was going to happen. They weren't ready, and that's why they followed through. They yielded it to the flesh. We'll be seeing that soon. But there are those who have victory. Remember Stephen? Right to the point of death. Right to the point of death. And yet, what did he do? He didn't condemn those that were killing him. No, not at all. He looked to the Lord, and you know the passage, and the Lord even stood for him. 
The Lord gave him strength to bear it. The Apostle Paul had many examples where he had appealed to the Lord and asked him to remove the thorn in the flesh, whatever that might have been. And the Lord said no. But because of his submission, when he understood that God's grace was sufficient for him, then he gloried in it, and he would rather have the strength that God would give. This example of the Lord Jesus Christ is to show us what he went through, yes. And there is so much that could be put on the teaching of this passage in Matthew alone. But I want you to see that right after praying with him, he went alone and he prayed. And what he was concerned about and what the cup was all about was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was all with the Lord Jesus Christ dying in my place, dying in your place, and bearing the weight of that sin. Being the sin sacrifice, being the free will offering to the Father, being forsaken by the Father, that's what was really heavy on his heart. And yet he submitted. He submitted and went ahead. And my friend, there isn't anything that you and I will face in life that we cannot go to our Savior who understands us fully and better than we understand and will be with us through the hard and difficult times and is able to give us the help and the strength who is our refuge and strength in time of need. And this was all before he even faced his betrayal from Judas Iscariot. So he's now done. He's on his way. He spends time alone with the Father, and I wanted you to see that. Spend some time alone with the Father, because from this moment forward, things are going to move rapidly. And it'll only be hours, and he will be on the cross bearing that sin. And it'll only be minutes before he will be betrayed by the ones that he's loved, by the ones he's ministered to, and the pathway will start. How much did God love you and me? There's a little picture of it here in Gethsemane. There's a little picture of it in Christ submitting to the Father's will, in drinking the cup. And when you think of that cup, he drank it for you. If you have not come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, there aren't any other ways. There were no other ways. This cup had to be born. A perfect sacrifice had to go to satisfy the righteousness of God. And there was only one who could do it, and it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice his compassion. What do we do when we fail? Well, we usually get depressed. We usually get discouraged. We usually get verbally criticized. We usually get harassed. That's what would happen with the Lord. That's what happens in Christianity. But what did his disciples eventually do? They bounce back. They look to the Lord. And isn't it interesting, the Lord at the end of there, as we close, he came to them. You're still sleeping and resting? The hour's at hand. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed here into the hands of sinners, and what does he say? Come on, let's go. Can't you just see the Lord's compassion even that? In just a few moments, he's going to be betrayed by them. They're all going to scatter. And he picks them up, takes them with him. 
and says, come, because the one who is betraying me is at hand. And it is at that moment that we'll pick it up back in John chapter 18, verse 3, because at that moment the things happen. But the Lord goes away and privately prays, asks his disciples, but they're weak. Are you and I weak? Yes. Will you and I fail? Yes. Get up. Continue on and be grateful for the Savior that we have. Be grateful for the prayer that we've seen in John chapter 17. And be grateful that he bore the cup for you and for me. Let's pray. Our Father in God, thank you and praise you for the love that is so immeasurable that you have for us. Oh, Father, forgive us. We so often accuse you, the world accuses you, of things that happen. Or we come to you in prayer just out of desperation. Father, you're such a loving God that loved us so much that the Son would come into the world to take on flesh and then to bear the cup because it was the only way. We thank you that your way is the only way. We thank you for those that you've brought to faith in Jesus Christ. You've opened up our understanding so that we could comprehend the gospel and believe it. We thank you for that. But we also know that in our midst there are those who have not yet trusted Christ. Help them to see that there is no other way of salvation. That as Jesus Christ came, he also recognized that the only way was for him to be the sin sacrifice, to bear the wrath of the transgressions of man to bear the wrath against sin. I thank you that he willingly submitted, willingly went forward, was still in control, and allowed men to take him, abuse him, and then allowed you to pour your wrath out on him that we might be set free from the bondage of sin and death, that we might be brought from death unto life, that we might be given eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. And Father, help us to be ever grateful for that and help us as we continue through the book of John and see him proceed to look far beyond just the physical and to realize that the cost of our salvation was great and that we indeed have been bought with a price. We are not our own. And help us to submit to the Spirit of God that you might have your will and your way in our life, whatever that might bring. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.